designer who's a French guy, and I'm not going to be able to say his name, Baron de Coubertin. Hey, that was pretty good. I'm going to say that again. He devised these symbols, um, and for those of you who know this, you get extra points this morning if you, are, if you know wh- what these mean. But actually, at that time, well, actually, I'm going to ask a question. Without looking on your, your phones, who knows what the five circles represent, the f- the f- that, that there's five? Anybody have a guess? Come on. At the time of the 1912 Olympics, five continents were represented in the Olympics. So the five continents, um, five continents were represented. And then who can tell me what the colors of those? Come on, you get extra points. Every flag that was um, represented at that time in the Olympics had one, at least one of those colors in its flag. So the Olympic symbol, and they actually called it Olympic, I'm not even going to be able to say it, Olympism, the spirit of the Olympics, was centered around the thought that the nations of the world were coming together to lay down their swords and their guns and to compete against one another using their skills of athletic um, strength to have a friendly competition in the spirit of unity in the world. Well, I believe that the only way that we actually can come together in the world in unity is when Christ, the spirit of Christ, is in the center of our endeavors, ultimately. Maybe we can stop for some games every once in a while. But when it comes to true unity, we, we recognize in the, in, the, in the word of God and in his teaching that the only unity that's truly found is found in Christ. And so we're going to spend the next five weeks unpacking what it looks like to be the church and how God has described us to live our individual lives, but also our corporate lives for him and his glory. And we're, we're centering this around our values. One of our timeless values that you see every week is described on the front of your bulletin, where it says that we are people that believe that we are to be revived in God refreshed in community and released in purpose. And so we, we will be touching on those themes as we go through the next five weeks. What are these five circles going to, are, are they going to stand for for us? If I can see the next slide, I'll show, the, show you kind of the big picture in the next slide. There you go. So this morning we're going to talk about that first circle and how pri- the beginning of our journey as a church is when individuals, the one, me, you, Devote ourselves passionately and worshipfully to God. And what does that look like to worship God? That's intertwined or interlocked with the second circle, which is that twos and threes. That our our greatest place of accountability and growth in our lives is when we meet together in twos or threes. And as we come together as peers and look into the word of God and look up to the God of heaven. God transforms us through that place of sharpening one another and encouraging one another and praying for one another. And that circle interlocks with our groups of ten or what we would symbolize as our small group communities, our faith groups, where not only are we devoting ourselves to, to God but, and, and to, to, to peer discipleship, but we are allowing um, ourselves to come together in fellowship, true, true fellowship and community and allowing 
ourselves to see the gifts that God has deposited in us, which are different in each one of us. Um, work together to strengthen one another in a, in a deep sense of community. And that interlocks into the circle of a hundred and or thousands, where we come together in larger groups like this on Sunday mornings. And we allow teachers and equippers and instructors to sow into us the teaching of the Word of God and fellowship at a, at a greater way where the smaller groups are coming together to experience life in, in relationship, but also to encounter God together in a powerful way through worship and through prayer ministry. Um, and then that last circle is the larger community outside of these walls that we're not meant to be created just to have a one or a two or three or a ten or a hundred. But this encounter that we have with God throughout those circles would in, in, in implore us, urge us to live our lives in such a way that the larger community, the world, the flags of the nations would not only hear about Jesus, but know Jesus and be transformed. Amen? So five weeks, five circles, um, our vision, our values at, at, at its most basic level in our church. This morning, we're going to start with that first circle, and I'm going to actually look in a very um, unique place in Scripture. It would not be a place that if we were just talking about our worship to God or our devotion to God that most people would go, but what God is doing in our community right now and what this passage of Scripture speaks to, I think, is very significant in, in, in what God is wanting to say to us this morning about that relationship with the one. And I'd like to look at James 4, and we're going to read verses 1 through 10 uh, to start off our morning. James 4, 1 through 10. James speaking to a church, if you're familiar with the with the uh, the book of James, speaking to a church that is comprised of both poor and wealthy, a diverse group of people, and uh, one who's gone gone through and is going through trials of persecution, of discouragement, but also finding in their midst the hope of Jesus and the encouragement of Christ in their midst, but also among one another. James, the one who starts out the book. Uh, uh, that he is this letter that he's writing with these thoughts. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, when you face trials of many kinds, knowing that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. So this is James writing to the church in the midst of their own factions and discouragements that he addresses within this letter, in the midst of their persecution and their trial. And he says this, What is causing the quarrels and fights among you? Don't they come from evil desires at war within you? You want what you don't have. So you scheme and kill to get it. You are jealous of what others have, but you can't get it. So you fight and wage war to take it away from them. Yet you don't have what you want because you don't ask God for it. And even when you ask, you don't get it because your motives are all wrong. You want only what will give you pleasure. You adulterers. By the way, James is kind of one of those tell it as it is kind of guys. Just, he's not going to beat around the bush. He's going to let his words be clear and direct and let the Spirit of God confront the listener. 
But he's, I, I do want to say this as we go here. Although this passage of Scripture seems heavy, embedded within this passage of Scripture is life and freedom, if you'll, if you'll glean from what he's, he's addressing. You adulterers, don't you realize that friendship with the world makes you an enemy of God? I say it again. If you want to be the, a friend of the world, you make yourself an enemy of God. Do you think the Scriptures have no meaning? They say that God is passionate and that the, that the spirit he has placed within us should be faithful to him. And he gives grace generously. As the scriptures say, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So what should we do? Humble yourselves then before God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come close to God, or in one translation, the NIV says, draw near to God, and God will come close, or he will draw near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, for your loyalty is divided between God and the world. Let there be tears for what you have done. Let there be sorrow and deep grief. Let there be sadness instead of laughter, gloom instead of joy. So let there be a a real recognition of of what sin does not only in your life, but in the lives of others. Verse 10, humble yourselves before the Lord, and He will lift you up in honor. When we think about this relationship with the Lord, when we think about me and God, the clearest picture that I have of that relationship is what James describes when he says, come close to God. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Hebrews talks about it in that Christ, in his work on the cross, what he did for us on the cross by dying for us, that while we were still sinners, he died for us and took our place where he took the punishment for us on the cross it says in Hebrews that the Holy of Holies, the place where uh, Jewish worshipers would say where God's presence resides. The Hebrew writer says that the veil was torn in two and that we have been invited in into the presence of the Lord through what Christ has done so that we might have fellowship with Him, so that we might have Friendship with God. How many of you see yourselves as friends of God? Not acquaintances. Not not just although God is our master and we are his servant. Not just that he is our God and we are the ones he has created, which is true. Not just that he is the one that gives us instructions and we obey, which is true. But a friend of God. This is how Scripture communicates our relationship with God as being, that we can draw close to Him. But in order for us to draw close to Him, we have to recognize that we have need of Him, don't we? So the first few verses in James, James uh, identifies, he's identifying a situation, but what he's really trying to do is to to allow the listener to evaluate their heart 
He's going in after their hearts. Why are you doing the things that you're doing? And what he's revealing to us is that we have selfishness in our hearts. We have comparison in our hearts apart from God. We have desires in our hearts that if not yielded to God can become very selfish and so selfish that they can end up leading to disastrous consequences. Quarreling, bickering, backstabbing, anger, hatred, even killing. Jesus himself said that if we have anger in our hearts, if we allow anger to reside in our hearts, that it is, it is comparable to murder. One of my kids, one of your kids, one of all of our kids, because it's true for every kid, recent example, left, their, uh, left the computer open where they were watching a show and went off to just go do something else, and another kid comes to look at the show, and when that kid comes to look at the show, with, it's like they had eyes on the back of their head. They hadn't, there's no way they could have known that another sibling had sat down to watch the show, but when they felt the presence of the show being stolen from them, they ran through the house, oh, I'm watching that show, you can't sit down and watch that. Like the worst catastrophe in the world had happened. Somebody else is watching my show? At a very early age, the desire to have and to protect and to keep and to claim is mine. Mine, 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 mine. That's mine. It's not just a show. It's a piece of pizza. It's, it's an ice cream bar. It's a place on the couch. For me, and we grow so much more mature when we get older, don't we? (laughs) The only thing that gets more mature is that we have sometimes better responses that hide what's really going on inside of me. No, 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 that's mine. That's that's my promotion. You shouldn't be getting that promotion. That's mine. No, 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 that's that's my house. I want a house like that, and that's my car. It's my, my car. No, 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 that's my grade. I want an A. I don't want to be. That's my grade. And, and James says we ask, but we don't get what we want. We pray. So that asking there is praying. That asking is putting ourselves in a position of worshiping God and coming to our God and saying, Mine, God. Mine, mine, mine. They have what I want. They took mine from me. Give me mine. And when God doesn't answer, because James makes it really clear that he doesn't answer those kinds of prayers. When God hasn't come through and we give up on God, then we take things in our own hands. And that's where it gets ugly. It's not just the kid running through the house and, mine, mine, no, no, you can't watch my show. A little shoulder bump into the chair, a little slide into action. A little, a little death stealing of the food back that should have been mine before they got it out of the bowl. It moves from childish responses to adult responses of gossip, 
of angry outbursts, of distancing of friendships when the friends don't even know why you're distancing yourself, of jealousies, petty, petty, petty arguments that, that turn out to be these little friendship circles where I bring my friend to me and I, and I say, well, you know, that person did that and you don't want to be their friend because that, you're my friend. And we start to have division. And James is saying that cannot be. In your heart where it starts, it leads to all kinds of ugly things that we can't imagine or want to see in the church. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is hatred towards God? There's an image here, and he says it twice, this image of adultery, of infidelity, of one spouse, one intimate lover, one very, very close friend saying, you know, I like you most of the time, but there's sometimes when I would like another lover. That's what adultery is, isn't it? We, we, uh, we long for more than what we should have or what we should need or what we should want. We want more. We want out. We want, want to have God in this context of this pastor scripture, but we also want to have the world too. And we have decided in our minds, and this goes, back, goes to where the devil is in this story, but we have believed a lie and, and, and bought into the fact that we can actually be fully devoted to God and in love with God and worshiping God and also fully in love with the world in pursuing the things that the world offers. And James is saying, uh-uh, that doesn't happen. We can't have two lovers. D.A. Carson, a theologian, says it's not that it is hard or painful to serve both God and desires or the world. It is impossible the person who tries to become a friend of the world is actually God's enemy, as the scripture says. They may be an orthodox, believing, and church-going enemy, but they are nonetheless an enemy of God. And how could James or D.A. Carson or anybody else say that when my intentions are very very pure, I think, that, God, I, I've put my trust in you. I love you. I've accepted you as my Savior. I, I go to church. I, I even go to all of those circles. I do all of those things. And yet you're telling me that if I have a love for the world or that I have a, an idolatry of things in the world, that I'm your enemy. That doesn't sound very nice. It's not very merciful of God, kind. And yet it's the kindest thing that James, that God could say through James, and he says in other places, it's the kindest thing he can say because he knows that if we have our hand on the reins of this horse, the church, and we have our hands on the rein of this horse, the world, and if they start going in different directions and we hold on to both of them, we will be torn apart. 
that our affections and our loyalties will be constantly at odds with one another. And God's kindest thing that he can say to us is let go of that rain and hold on to me and trust that everything you think that that horse or that world will offer you, I can offer you something better. Do we believe that? Do we believe that if we let go of the idolatry of the things of this world, and it's different for different ones of us in the room, but if we let go of the things that we think are the things we really have to pursue and give the most of our time and our energy and our affections to because they are the ones that make us happy, if they are not a part of God, that they truly won't make us happy in the end. How many people have ever been around a person, whether wealthy or not, because it doesn't matter, who desires to get rich, that when they actually get what they want, more money, they're happy? How many of us have been around anybody who really hated their five or ten-year-old car, that when they got a new car, they were sustained with happiness for the extent of their six-year purchase agreement? How many of us have been around a person who said, if I could just get married, I'll be happier? That when they got married, they 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 were blissfully happy for the rest of their lives. You see what I'm saying? How many... Of you know a person who works their tail off to get the promotion that they know that if they got that promotion, their life would be better, only to find that when they got the promotion, was their life any better? See what I'm saying? When our idols are not placed, well, when we have idols and our affections are not placed in God, that horse, if held on to, will tear us apart. It'll tear us apart by empty dreams unfulfilled promises, unfulfilled longings that never get met. The person that leaves one lover for another, are they ever happier with a new lover? Never. And so God is saying, listen to Jonah. Listen to me now, church. If you'll let go and allow me to be God, I will fulfill you way, way more than you ever can imagine that you'd be fulfilled. And what is the prescription that he gives uh, to that? Look with me at the rest of that passage of Scripture in James. Hold on for a second. I'm going to find it here in my Bible. He goes on and says that, and we just read this, that God desires to give us grace He opposes the proud, but he gives grace or he favors the humble. So humble yourselves before God. What is the antidote for idolatry? What is the antidote for trusting in things that do not fulfill or satisfy? It's humbling ourselves before God. The first step is saying, God, I trust you. I trust you. One translation says, Submit yourself to God. Put yourself in a place of submission. You don't have to have all the answers. 
when I came, became a Christian, I had no idea what my trials or my, or my challenges would be when I was 30 or 40 or 48 that I am today. I had no idea when I put my trust in the Lord what kind of trials and decisions I would have in front of me. The only thing that I knew for sure in my heart was, God, as a 12-year-old, I trust you. I don't know what trusting you is going to look like, but I trust you. I believe that what you have for me and who you are is better than anything that I could try to provide for myself. James is saying, submit yourself to God. Humble yourself. Set aside your pride and allow me to be the one that you're married to. And if you will do that, here's here's the first and greatest promise of hope and encouragement in this scripture. Grace. Grace. Right in the middle of this really serious rebuke, really serious challenge where James is trying to get at the heart of his listeners. They've been doing stuff like making, making the poor people and the, the people that don't have any influence sit in the back and get the... There, there's all kinds of comparison and, and judgment that's going on in the church and James is saying, no more. Grace for every person in this room, poor, rich, no matter where you come from, if you humble yourself before God, the outpouring of his unmerited favor on your life. Unbelievable forgiveness. Unbelievable encouragement. When we were singing about God, I want more of your presence. The presence of the loving and caring God surrounded and centered in your life. Everything that you truly want. Why do we commit adultery? Why do we long for stuff? Why do we, we, why do we want the promotion? Because at the core of who we are, we don't know who we are. And we don't know who we, what we really want. When we want a promotion, we want identity. We've already, we've already been promoted as believers in Jesus. We're sons and daughters of the King of kings and the Lord of lords. When we want stuff, we've already been told that the that every need that we have will be provided for and above and beyond what we could ever imagine or ask for. Everything that we need in this world will have, but who cares? Because beyond that, we have eternity where we have all the riches of heaven at our disposal. When we long for other lovers and long for relationships and intimacy here in this world, in this world which God loves to give us in deep friendships and spouses, but when we put our hope that that's what's going to make us secure and complete, we forget that the greatest lover in all the universe, the greatest father, is already our friend and our savior and our dad. And he has given us the deep assurance that we long for. Humble yourself. Submit yourselves to me. Draw near to me. Come near to me, and I will come to you. He's just asking for us to call out to him. This week, as I was spending time with Jesus, I, I, um, as, I, as, I, as I make a practice of doing, I wake up in the morning, and the first thing I do is get a cup of coffee, a glass of water, 
because then you know, everybody has to have a cup of coffee at the beginning of the day, right? No, okay, I'm just kidding. Thank you, Kevin. Get my cup of coffee and sit down, and I begin to pray. And I have different things I do at different times in my time with the Lord, but I always read Scripture. I always pray. I always worship. And then God speaks to me. And God said to me this week, in, you can look in my journal. He says, Sean, what's your heart longing for right now? And what's your heart afraid of? What do you, at the, you know, I'm like, God, I just want a cup of coffee. I, I, want, I want some good words today, Lord. I don't want to, just want lots of affirmation, affection. Just what's going on in your heart? And I'll be vulnerable with you. At that moment, what was going on in my heart is, God, I, I, I'm not thinking about myself the way I, I should be thinking. I've got some insecurities that I'm dealing with today. Some things that happened yesterday caused me to doubt who I am. And another thing, God, is I'm, I'm fearful. I'm afraid of a few things in my life. There's some things that are staring me in the face that I, I have to admit, I'm not walking in a lot of courage or confidence right now, God. I'm, to be honest with you, God, I'm glad you asked the question. I got a little emotional with the Lord. I said, I need some help. He said, that's why I asked the question. Because I want to come to you. And I want to let you know how awesome you are. And I want you to know that you don't have to be afraid. Because I'm with you. Jesus, as we sung about this morning, wants to be the center of our life. And he wants us to draw near to him. And he wants to come to us. And he wants to be our friend. And wrapped up in this passage of scripture, James says, one of the ways that we come near to God and he becomes our friend is when we let go of the world. And we deal with our sin. Guess what I had to do? Or guess what I had to? I didn't feel a have to. Guess what was one of the first things I did when he brought that revelation? I was like, Lord, forgive me for fearing. How silly of me. How wrong of me to doubt that you would be there for me. I said, I'm sorry, God. Would you please forgive me? And I repented. Our pastor repented? I repent all the time. I'm constantly battling. And as, as Dan shared earlier, as he was talking about his own journey, part of this passage of scripture goes on, and that draw near to me and I will draw near to you. Resist the devil and he will flee. How do we resist the devil? We resist the devil by the truth of God's word. How did Jesus resist the devil? When the devil lied to him, he told him the truth. And that's the same way that we resist the devil. And that's the same way that I resisted the devil this, this week. By the word of God, I declared through the scriptures I knew and through, through the truth that I knew in his word, what my identity was in him, where my fear should be placed. What, my tr what the truth was about who God was and how he loved me. And I said to those lies, lies, those are your lies. Devil, you're a liar. I'm not going to believe those lies. I'm going to believe the truth. I resisted the work of the enemy and he flees. We are in a season as a church where we are really believing that God is wanting us to draw near to him. And we know that as we draw near to him, God is so delighted to draw close to us. But we are also in a place where we realize that one of the, the, the best ways, one of the clearest ways in scripture that he teaches us to start that journey of drawing near is through letting go of the world and 
confessing our sin and asking for forgiveness. James, at the end of this book, he talks about one of the last things he says in this letter is he says, if you'll confess your sins to each other, you'll be healed. We believe that this church needs to be a place where the, the, where the environment is such that if you bring in burdens, both needs and sins, into this place or into a faith group or into a relationship, a one-on-one relationship with somebody in this church, that you're going to experience grace from God and grace from us to be heard, to be understood, to be encouraged that you can not only be freed through repentance, confession and repentance, but that God has grace to replace that sin or that addiction or that hurt with his presence. And we want to invite people to that place today. So as we stand up, there's an invitation. Go ahead, you can go ahead and stand up with me. There's an invitation to not just hear what's wrong in your life, but to hear the invitation that I am, and this is God, God would be speaking to you, I'm bringing this up in your life, not to condemn you, but so that you can come close to me and I can heal you through forgiveness and through grace.